Welcome to Who Watches the Watchmen podcast, a weekly discussion of the new HBO series Watchmen. My name is Derek Wong. And I'm Jeff Zhang. So before we get into this past Sunday's episode, I want to give a shout out to another listener who sent us an email this week. Derek, you forwarded the email to me, mm-hmm. uh, correct? So a listener by the name of Leah Ackerman wrote to us. Really nice email. Um, she wrote, I'm a little late to the party. Initially, I had no interest in Watchmen since I don't know anything about the novel, movie, or comic books. But it's been getting great reviews, so I decided to binge the first three episodes. Then I listened to some podcast recaps, of which yours is the best, in my opinion, and rewatched each episode. Now I'm hooked on the show and your podcast. So she also mentions a couple of neat little tidbits that we thought we could share, both from the first episode of the series. It's always great getting emails from listeners, so just keep them coming in. We love to read them out on the actual podcast. And this one, she said about the first episode in the classroom scene with Angela, as she's sucking up the egg yolks and placing them in a separate bowl, she explains why the whites and the yolks are separate in the shell due to the strength of the wall between them. But if those walls are broken and a drop of the yolk touches the white, the whole thing breaks down. And she said that she felt that was a really great metaphor for the white supremacy themes of the show. I mean, I definitely agree with what she's saying. Like, I, I think there's many ways to kind of interpret what she's kind of saying. And yeah, it actually reminds me of, I'm pretty sure you've seen it, Get Out. Right, where, uh, <laughs> Allison, where Allison Williams', Williams character, yeah. she's, she's separating the... Uh, colored fruit loops from the yeah the right 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 That's yeah 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 so it really reminded me of that scene when she said that i immediately flashed to that so that's yeah, that's, a good, yeah. that's similar a good catch. similar vibes yeah. yeah yeah that's a really great catch i took the time actually to re-watch because I, I was interested i, I re-watched that scene and uh-huh. i i don't i can't remember it i, I might have heard this first on the official podcast or i heard it somewhere else but if you rewatch that scene you know, the two yolks are the eyes, and then she smears the other yolks to be the smile on the face. Right, right, right. If you look at the left yolk, there's a drop of blood in it. Oh, I didn't kind of like, that, you know, like yeah. the pin. Like I, I saw it again the second time, and I know I heard it somewhere. I don't know if it was the official podcast or another, another, or somewhere I read or, or saw, but then I noticed it the second time when I rewatched the scene. There is a drop of blood in that left eye, just like the pin. Oh, very cool. And also, the, the second thing she wanted to mention was. Judd's conversation with the wounded policeman's wife. He tells her that they have to concoct a story that her husband was carjacked coming home, saying that he was at night school, because that's the story that'll keep everyone safe. And, and um, the wounded policeman's wife, she scoffs at the word safe, and, and Judd replies, I know what you're thinking, fuck me and the horse I rode in on. Which Leia recalls that from the opening scene where Little Will Reeves is watching uh, Bass Reeves apprehend the, the white sheriff, the crooked white sheriff um, who's riding a horse. Uh, that's actually like a great catch because now that we're four episodes in, we can definitely see that as a kind of foreshadowing mm-hmm. of Judd's true nature, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, we don't know if he's actually crooked, but he's, he obviously has ties to 
white supremacy though right yeah. so and we'll, we'll talk a little a, bit more about it in a later scene i think yeah yeah for sure but yeah uh so for everyone out there who's who's listening we love these listener emails just keep sending them in and we'd love to read them out to you guys yeah definitely address it because she she brings up some really great points i think it's great that there's others out there that are catching things that we don't right yeah yeah thanks thanks for listening and thanks for writing should we get into the episode, Jeff? Yeah, so on today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at the fourth episode titled, If You Don't Like My Story, Write Your Own. The episode was directed by Andre Parekh, who is mostly known as a cinematographer. He was director of photography for the movie Blue Valentine. I don't know if you've seen that. Mm, with a, No, I haven't, but I've heard of it. One of my, my wife's favorite movies with Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. Mm-hmm. Super depressing. <laughs> but it was a very good movie. And he's also directed several episodes of Succession, which also oh. airs on HBO. So yeah. Keeping it within the family. And the episode was written by Damon Lindelof and Crystal Henry, who is a veteran TV writer responsible for several episodes of one of my favorite canceled too soon uh, police procedurals, The Chicago Code. I'm pretty sure no one but me has even heard of this show, but... I love this show, even though it was only on for a season. So it's good to see someone who worked on that work on another great show here. Is that show like part of that Chicago family? It is of not. Shows? Because... Oh, it is not. Coincidentally, just called Chicago Code, but it it's is not, not part, part of, of Chicago Fire Med or PD. <laughs> I just think that stuff is like super lowest common denominator stuff. I I never watch any of that. I don't find myself watching as much, um, like, uh, I, what do you consider those, like, primetime television, like NBC, ABC? Yeah. I actually don't find myself watching as I used those, to watch a lot more of them, but anymore. now, uh, not, yeah, not me so too. much. The title of the episode, it seems like a pretty generic phrase that you can apply to a lot of things. But mm-hmm. it's actually a line from the novel, Things Fall Apart, by a Nigerian author named Chinua Achebe. So in the Mm -hmm. context of Watchmen, this is the novel that Cal is reading at the end of the episode. We're kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but that Angela kind of spoils, although it's not really the kind of novel that you can spoil. And Things Fall Apart is widely regarded as a milestone in African literature, and it details life in Nigeria and the effect that European colonialism has on it during like the late 19th century. It's a really important work, and it's a novel that's read and taught a lot in schools. And I think Things Fall Apart and Achebe himself are considered, I would say, like monoliths of African identity and nationalism. And this really plays into like the themes of this episode. I think this episode has pretty noticeable through-line touching upon colonialism. So I think the inclusion mm-hmm. of this book as a reference is like a really telling one. I mean, we should we should just dive right into the episode, right? Normally, we like to kind of give our impressions before we step into the episode, but I, I actually like to to do that. Oh, you want to do that at the end? So okay. I, I think let's yeah, let's 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 just dive into the first scene. So the first scene, where I guess we're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, still, but we're we're seeing this woman who's I guess on the side of the road selling eggs, right, at a farm called Clark Acre Farms. So when I see the word Clark first place my mind goes to of course is clark kent mm-hmm. i mean it's a mild manner farm mild manner uh, later couple. <laughs> we see yeah mild manner couple later we see i mean skipping ahead maybe like three minutes four minutes 
uh, we see something falling out of the sky and it right. lands near this farm. It's not a coincidence, but at the same time, I don't know if we're supposed to read too much into that. Oh, I think it's definitely an overt Superman reference. Oh, I, yeah, I definitely think it's a Superman reference. But are we supposed to read more into like, oh, maybe this is a super powered thing that fell from the sky? You know, yeah, I mean? we, like, we don't know how, how much. Yeah. How much are we supposed to actually read into it? Yeah, I think I think it's just a cool little reference and and not much else. I remember that when I first saw this scene, I was a little confused. Are they already together or who? The, that couple. Yeah, I think they're already together. Okay, because it seemed like the whole egg thing. I could like... see that, um, where she like drops all the eggs. It's got like this whole like aw shucks kind of uh, yeah uh, mentality there. I didn't even think of it that way, but I could see someone interpreting like them falling in love. Yeah. But I think I think it's just a. But I think a, they're already in love. Yeah, I think it's just a day in the life, a day in the life type thing where that whole thing yeah. is just one day, and they're already yeah, yeah. together. Yeah. Just because, like, basically the rest of the scenes is all, like, one day that they're yeah, showing. Yeah, so it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't really make already... sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, they're eating dinner. They're doing a puzzle. Which doing, looks like starting the night. dishes, yeah. They get in bed, and they're about to go to sleep, and they hear a doorbell. So they, they go to the front door, and there's this woman who's kind of hidden in the shadows a little bit. And she asks, you know, are you the Clarks? And, you know, they say yes. And then the man, I think, recognizes her and says, oh, aren't you Lady True? you know she says yes and you know she goes into the house and they're talking and she says you know what have you heard about me Mm -hmm. you know they say uh, she's a billionaire and she's the one who's building the clock down the road so the clock that they're referring to is that thing the millennium clock that we saw in the last episode right when pd and uh, laurie are flying into tulsa and they see the clock and then she, she corrects them uh, and saying that she's a trillionaire. Yeah, she's a trillionaire, not, <laughs> not a billionaire. Yeah, and then what she is building is more than a clock. And then she starts to go into this kind of weird segment where right, she opens this uh, portfolio and pulls out a piece of paper and says that they have, what, three minutes? Yeah, well, first she pulls out the, the, the gigantic uh, hourglass. Yes. Yeah, she sets that on the table, and she says to the clerks, for the next three minutes... Uh, you are the most important people in the world. And she wants the Clark family farm. She wants the farm plus like the 40 acres of land that it sits on. Mm-hmm. And she essentially gives them three minutes to decide whether they want to do this or not. And how she how she incentivizes them is pretty fucked up. It's really manipulative. Yeah. <laughs> She's so much charisma. Like it, it actually kind of reminds me of Lori. Like, you know what I mean? She She's a woman of power. She's a woman with a lot of charisma yeah but she's a little bit doesn't have the correct probably social skills and manners <laughs> i mean if you're if you're a trillionaire i think i think uh yes in a lot of cases your your social skills fall by the wayside right she says some interesting things i mean she says she got rich off of advanced pharma and biological tech yeah and then you know she starts going into about like well you know i purchased a bunch of fertility clinics and one of them that she owns is the Sooner Fertility Clinic. And then, you know, she goes in this kind of creepy backstory of 10 years ago, you guys tried to get pregnant and you couldn't. But I think that's bullshit. And, you know, she says that, you know, I'm not offering you money, which she still does offer them money. Yeah. But she's offering them something I think more important to them, which is a child. Right. So she's emphasizing the importance of legacy. Right. Yes. And how like at this point they have none. So she's offering yeah. them a baby. 
But at first, the, the woman, uh, Mrs. Clark, she's furious. She tells her to leave immediately. There's that interesting line where she's like, well, this lady's trying to make us a baby. Right. I'm not buying it. Get out. And yeah. then Lady Chu's like, no, no, no. You misunderstood. You misunderstood yeah. me. I'm not offering to make you a baby. I made you a baby. Like, yeah. that's ballsy. To be well, like, you know what? I'm just going to make a child. It's in true uh, Adrian Veidt fashion, right? Ozymandias, <laughs> yeah. where he was like, oh, I already did that 35 minutes ago. It's kind of like... That's true. Like yes, that. that's a good so callback to that's, the comic. That's definitely yeah. a callback to the comic. And then she, you know, she's giving them three minutes. And at this point, I think they only have like minute or 30 seconds yeah, left. Yeah, something like that. Like, you know, I've put $5 million into you, one of your accounts. And, you know, you could use that money to relocate, college fund, you know, and all the baby stuff that you need. Yeah. And she's basically saying like, here, and that that's the paper that she pulls out, I'm guessing is the lease, right? To the land and the, the house. Right. Uh, and, you know, hands them pens like, hey, you have 10 seconds. Or I'm going to, yeah, I'm going well, to destroy the baby. Her associate brings in the baby. Oh, so that, that, that brings me back. So there's a point where the doorbell rings, right? Mm -hmm. And then she says something in Vietnamese. Yeah. If we have any Vietnamese listeners, tell, unless you know, Jeff, I'm, did, did you I'm, know what I'm she assuming said? she's just like, oh, bring in the baby, I guess. Or I'm not ready yet or something, something like, like that. Right? I don't know. Who knows? But hey, if we have any Vietnamese listeners and they can let me know or let us know what she actually said. Yeah. Her associate brings in the baby. Which is the girl from the newsstand. Right. right. So originally we thought that she was buying uh, newspapers for Lori. Or some people speculate. In our yeah, second yeah. episode. Well, that's what I said. Oh, yeah. We said, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. Um, yeah. Because Lori was the only significant female character other than Angela who was in the promotional materials, right? So I was like, oh, so she's definitely talking about Lori. Mm -hmm. But now we know it's, that's not the case. It's, it's uh, Lady True. And this girl is, uh, her name is Bian, which we'll find out later. She's Lady True's quote-unquote daughter. But we'll, we'll get into that later. Um, so with 30 seconds left on the clock, Lady True pressures them into accepting the deal, right? And uh, she makes this super morbid joke about destroying the baby if yeah. they refuse. Um, and then she's like, no, just kidding. Yeah, just I kidding. I would never do you know, that. Find them a yeah. She still sells it in a very Yeah, she way, still like, says, like, if you don't sign over the land, the baby will never know where he or she came from or who yeah, you are, which right? Is so, like, which is another thing about legacy. And yeah. that couple, they signed those papers so fast. And as soon as they sign, the, the house starts to shake and like the lights mm -hmm. start flickering mm -hmm. and they all step out onto the porch. And this is when this uh, unknown object falls onto the, the Clark property, right? And they all mm -hmm. ask Lady True what the object is. And all she says is like, that is mine mm -hmm. right i wanted to ask you just because i've you know i've read some articles read some reviews right. and i think there are some people that they're still a little confused about this scene okay how did you interpret all this i have an idea i i mean i'm curious what you thought like what the object is or so like why is it three minutes and why does she want the land so she wants the land because she wants to own the land when the object falls onto the property yes. okay right and yes she that's exactly what I she think obviously predicted exactly when this object would land so that is why she's giving them three minutes so she got to the door three minutes before the object was supposed to land i'm assuming that's that's what it is yeah me and you're on the exact same page so so what are people question, 
confused about. I don't know. Like I've read some reviews and articles like, well, why didn't she give them only three minutes? And why oh, was she okay. so curious about this land? I've seen some like people predict like, oh, she's going to want to build something on this land. It's like, no, she wanted the land because she wanted the thing that's falling yeah. on her property now. But now it begs the question, like, what is it? Yeah. How does she know that it was going to fall on this this particular plot of land? And like, how does she know like pretty much the exact time that it was going to do it? Right? Yeah. There's all these interesting questions that yeah, are you know, unanswered and definitely begs those probably, questions. Probably. Yeah. And yeah. And there's yeah. a there's a bunch of like little Easter eggs in this first scene too. So in the beginning, when Mrs. Clark is selling the eggs by the road, mm-hmm. she's reading a book that's titled Fog Dancing, which isn't a real book, uh, but it's written by the fictional Max Shea who's the same man that wrote the Tales from the Black Freighter in the graphic novel. Oh, um, I didn't catch that. Nice. So in the graphic novel, Shay was actually one of the great minds, quote-unquote, that Ozymandias recruited to design and create the psychic squid monster. Oh. So presumably one can only deduce that <laughs> Shay was killed by Ozymandias along with all the other mm. people that were working on this secret squid project right um yeah that's just a little callback to the graphic novel and i don't think we're supposed to infer anything from that but just a nice little tie-in to the graphic novel and and also lady true takes her namesake from a real person oh okay yeah so her namesake comes from a real historical figure and the real lady true was a vietnamese revolutionary who rose up against the Wu Chinese occupation mm-hmm. of Vietnam in the third century. So she's kind of like the Vietnamese Joan of Arc. And oh, cool. if you read like on the Wikipedia, like her famous quote is like, I like to ride the storms, kill sharks in the open sea, drive out the aggressors, reconquer the country, undo the ties of serfdom, and never bend my back to be the concubine of whatever man. So read into that what you will, right? Mm-hmm. About her nature, you know? There's definitely some interesting things I want to say about Lady True, but we'll we'll get into that in the later scenes. later scenes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our next scene where uh, it looks like you know Angela returns to the bakery, and she basically goes there for the one purpose of cleaning up all the evidence that yeah that I guess Will left behind. You know, she cleans up the eggs, uh, she breaks down the the wheelchair. Yeah. Um, and, and this kind of goes back to like when me and, you know, Amir were talking about her, like she's like in detective mode all the time and like very smartly approaches things. And this is another kind of example of that, right? She she knows that she has all this evidence in her bakery and she's got to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. You know, she sees that letter that Will dropped, I guess, from when he gets lifted away in, in her car. Yeah. And she's kind of looking at it and she's she turns on the burner. She's about to burn it. But she kind of looks at it and kind of contemplates. Mm. But while she's contemplating, I guess she gets another message from the cultural center again. It doesn't really give them any new information. It's more like, oh, now this is a message for Angela saying like, hey, you have or no, is it what is it message? No, for it's still a message for Will. It just says, Will, yes, we have good right. news. We have identified a new mm-hmm. branch of your family tree. And mm-hmm. it says, your ancestors await. So obviously, Angela is a little distracted by this message. And she accidentally actually burns the letter that, that Will yeah. gives her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I love that. I guess her answering machine is <laughs> like, we're like a bakery where we let Saigons be Saigons. Yeah. Which I thought it was super I, clever. I thought it was. <laughs> This this one I, had, I had a lot of a uh, lot of cute little puns in this episode that I yes I like. Uh, she goes to cultural center, right? 
Yeah. And calls dispatch and saying like, oh, you know, is anyone aware of the silent alarm at the cultural center? And yeah, it's like a break uh, in there, a silent alarm. Yeah, there's a been there like, no, it's like, well, if, if you see a trip, it's me because I'm going to go investigate. Yeah. So basically she causes this, right? She's she's setting it up. So yeah, she know, stages uh, a break. She has an alibi. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she goes in, she goes back into one of those terminals. She basically this time, instead of pretending to be Will, she actually chooses her pre- presents name, her yeah. own name. What's interesting is that uh, I guess they kind of like check her family tree. They produce this digital or not digital. Uh, like Coded a, acorn. Yeah. yeah. That she can quote unquote plant in the cultural centers. <laughs> they call it the ancestry Ancest tree. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you've seen the trailers, like this is like one of the moments in the trailer where, you know, that digital tree kind of spurts out. Yeah. It's like they say they have blue she, hologram that, that yeah. like, coalesces in front of her. You know, they says she has a new branch on her father's side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we learn a lot of information here, right? Uh, uh, her grandma's name was June Abar. But it's interesting. I thought that the cultural center was able to make all these connections already, but it, it still says that your grandpa is not yet known. Let's find out who he is. But I guess it needs her permission to do all this. I'm not sure. Like it's, I was, it's not I, exactly I didn't know how to interpret clear this. what's going on here. Because yeah. the new information comes in the form of Will's parents or Angela's great grandparents, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, like, the pre recorded narrator tells her that her great grandparents were Obie Williams and Ruth Robeson, who is the couple in the opening scene of the first episode, right? The couple during the, the Tulsa 21 massacre. And yep. uh, the records indicate that Obie and Ruth had one son whose name was lost in the fires and that the entire family was killed in the massacre so i think there's like Mm -hmm. a disconnect between when angela used will's dna and then when she said her own name they they don't talk to each other so they don't know that one completes the other right yeah it's weird because two episodes ago we saw her get a call and you say hey congratulations will you qualified for the refredations and would you like to check if anyone's part of your family lineage yeah and she says says angela name yeah so it's kind of weird that this like, one that's where up. I was very confused. Yeah. Where I, I thought it made that connection, but then now it doesn't have that connection here. So I, I was I was a little confused in this whole, yeah. this whole situation. Yeah. It presumes that Obi and Ruth's family was killed in the nineteen you know twenty one Tulsa riots, mm-hmm. and then there's this kind of cool visual where we see the hologram of uh, Little Will and you know her her face and his face kind of align and she's having a conversation with the hologram mm-hmm. saying uh you came into my life and you, you know you blew it up and you know where you are now like leave me the fuck alone yeah, she's like i know who i am now yeah. i i accomplished what you set out for me to do so now just leave me the fuck alone right um yeah. that's what that's what she says yeah. and i thought it was interesting this uh this little blue tree i don't know if it's on purpose or not it's really reminiscent of dr manhattan when he's forming after his accident, right? Like kind of like the oh uh, yeah, the like circular scene where there's like just veins. Yeah, and, the and circulatory just system just and the nervous system. system. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. I I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. I'm I'm not sure. That's kind of a stretch, but that's what that's what it reminded me of. So uh, nice. No, no, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, well, and then the scene ends where she hears this loud crash and a car alarm, and yeah. you know she doesn't know what it is, but we do. Yeah. Uh, she goes outside to find Lori just, and this was the end of last episode, right? Lori right. looks up and she just starts laughing hysterically. You know, that's where we enter this scene where Angela's coming from behind. She sees Lori hunched over and she's like laughing and laughing. And then all of a sudden 
Lori just stops laughing and pulls mm. out a gun. That was so funny to me. She just <laughs> on a dime was just like alert and ready to go. Yeah, those, which I thought those, was really uh, great. superhero instincts, I guess. Yep. Uh, so Angela approaches the car and I guess that she has a spare key under the tire, you know, turns the alarm off. And that's when Lori realizes, oh, this is her car. Right. And then, you know, Angela goes into the car, calls dispatch and says like, hey, you know, this is my, you know, my missing car and I'm going to need a tow. And she looks into the glove compartment and that's where she finds the pills. Mm -hmm. Right. And these are the pills that uh, Will takes, I believe, in the second episode for his memory, quote unquote. Right. And Lori tells Angela that the car fell out of the sky. Mm hmm. Right. So that's a bit of information that Angela didn't know, but now knows because of Lori. So yeah. now like their stories are starting to intertwine a little bit more. Right. And we'll and see that Angela's for the rest like, of the episode that their stories are pretty. Yeah. And then Angela's like, you're kidding. And Lori says, I don't kid about things falling yeah. out of the sky. <laughs> but that's literally against what she just said the last episode. Right. Because yeah, she that, tells a joke that about, something, joke falling was <laughs> about <laughs> something falling out of the sky. So that's, that's yeah. kind of a little funny that's reversal. Really funny. Maybe we're skipping a little ahead here, but I guess we'll just do it now. We learn later that it was True Industries, right, that takes the car. Mm -hmm. Because True has these, like, aircrafts that can lift things and yeah, they're like it lifts these, things up. So that, these massive drones. You know, um, yeah, so that they could probably take building supplies up higher or, you know, lift things up to the, the top of the tower. And so we, we do find out later that it is True that was the one that rescued Will and took him away. Mm -hmm. But we also know that these are true telephone booths, right? The ones that uh, Lori was talking into right. earlier. So is it that maybe she was listening in, you know, was listening to this joke? I mean, she must have. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's yeah. not like a coincidence, I don't think. So yeah, it, it all kind of starts aligning a little bit more, which is, I think, really, really great. Yeah. And then, you know, Lori says, I'll let you be. And, and that's when Angela takes the pills out of the car. And, and that's where we end the scene. And then it moves into the next scene where we're back at Angela's house. Mm -hmm. And Cal is in bed with, I believe, the two daughters. Yeah. Angela walks in and sees them kind of lying in the bed. Yeah, they're like taking up all the room in the bed. So she All the room. So she realizes that, you know what, I'll go sleep in their bed then. So she goes into their room, jumps into the bottom bed of, of, of a bunk bed. And I'm guessing that's one of the girls' beds because above her is Topher. Right, right. Topher kind of asks, where were you? And she says, you know, I needed to stay longer at the cemetery. The police needed to ask me more questions. So this answers your question or your assumption from last week. Right, that Cal knows what she does, but the kids don't. Right, right. So the kids still believe that she is no longer a cop and that she's just she's like, retired, a baker. Yeah, yeah, she's um, retired and she's just a baker. It, it's implied that the girls didn't see the man get shot in the head, but Topher did. Right, right. Well, Topher he lies and he says, "I didn't see the man get shot in the head," but Angela knows that he did. Right. Um, he asks, yeah. "Oh, is that what he says?" I yeah, couldn't tell. Like, I, I thought I thought he said they didn't. Yeah, he's or, like, "I didn't see know. that man get shot in the head." Mm. And then Angela's like, "Yeah, you did." And okay. he asks okay. Angela if she was scared when she was saving everyone, um, and she replies that she was, and that and that she still is a little. And there's like another little scene where you really get to see how how mature and precocious Topher is, right? Um, he gives her a, a stuffed animal. To comfort her, to kind of comfort her, um, yeah. and it's funny because that stuffed animal is a uh, is Bubastus, oh, the, the, Ozymandias's uh, genetically cat. engineered yeah. lynx. <laughs> yeah, so 
It's a nice little Easter egg there. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I really like their dynamic together. Yeah, I really like, know, I like the conversation. Too. Yeah, I, I like the conversations that they have because it is very, you know, he's still a kid, but it's still very kind of like grown up. And it's interesting. She talks to him. Yeah, just like an adult. Right. She treats him very mature. And it's it's an interesting dynamic. So we, uh, we move into the next scene. I guess it's the next morning. Angela and Cal are making waffles for the kids mm-hmm. and they're talking about the night before and they're basically kind of recapping what we already know and yeah, just and kind of Angela's, catching up. Yeah, Cal. she's really frank with him, right? She tells him mm-hmm. pretty much everything. She's like, oh, I broke into the cultural yes. center and she admits that she isn't really thinking rationally about all this stuff with, mm-hmm. with Will and their conversations interrupted by the kids arguing right? <laughs> mm-hmm. The girls think Uncle Judd went to heaven and, and Topher, he disagrees. <laughs> yeah. The line is, uh, Topher said Uncle Judd isn't going to heaven when he blowed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, Cal gives it to them straight, right? He says, you know, heaven is pretend. Yeah. And, you know, it, before Uncle Judd was born, he was he was nowhere. Yeah. And he was born, he lived his life. After he died, he's nowhere now. Yeah, he's nowhere. So it implies yeah, yeah. that he's, you know, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in i guess any kind of god or heaven and but then you know angela kind of gives them look like nowhere i don't know if they both believe the same thing or it's just maybe you should have had more tact in this situation but right we talked last scene about angela you know treating topher like an adult and talking to him like adult but then cal wants to be really open and frank with his daughters like angela gives him a look yeah so uh we move on to the next scene where angela i guess goes to lg's house Mm -hmm. but he doesn't go into the home and goes into the backyard and knocks on this door to what is a, a bunker. Yeah, it's like a dark room slash armored bunker. And I'm guessing, you know, he, he has it to be prepared just in case another giant squid lands, right? Yeah, it's like some real uh, Rorschach shit. He'd be proud, right? It's like one yeah. of those survivalist <laughs> yeah. bunkers. LG says some pretty interesting things. He says, you know, it's been weeks since the last squid fall. Mm-hmm. I- I'm guessing he means it's been weeks since the one that we saw recently, like weeks before that, that was the last one. So yeah. he, I guess he took the opportunity to try to take some pictures of the squids. Mm-hmm. And this confirms something that I was wondering. I, I, I don't know if you remember when we talked about the first episode. That, that, I that they where dissolved. I, I noticed that yeah. They, they, yeah, they looked like they were dissolving, mm-hmm. right? They weren't just solid and they were dissolving. And they, I guess this... This episode kind of confirms it, right? Mm-hmm. He says they only really live for 30 seconds and that's their whole life, right? Is yeah. To, to rain down and then just die. Yeah. Well, he was like, <laughs> it's some real existential shit. He's like, yeah. uh, the squids live only for 30 seconds before dissolving and they spend all 30 of those seconds dying or whatever. That's yeah. what he says. So, yeah. Um, and then Andrew's like, you're fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, speak for yourself, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Basically. Yeah. It's funny because he has a little sympathy for them, right? He says, oh, yeah, you know, for poor sure. Bastards. Yeah, yeah. You know, poor poor bastards rain down on us from another dimension. And, you know, they must be as confused as we are. Yeah. So he has a little bit of sympathies for whatever these creatures are. Mm-hmm. After this whole kind of exchange about the squids, we get into the, the meat of the, the scene where now Angela, I guess, is trusting in LG with some more information. If you remember the scene where they're at the crime scene, and I think in the second episode, where LG gets in the car, she sees the mug she took from Will. Yeah, so like, and she doesn't say anything about it, right? She doesn't want to trust him with that information. Mm -hmm. But now she's starting to trust him with some more information with the pills and then also the rope Mm -hmm. that 
she found in Judd's closet. Yeah, so the, now she's kind of bringing LG into the fold. Yeah, the clan robe. Mm-hmm. She first gives him the pills and she asks if he can have his ex evaluate mm-hmm. these. So we learned that he's, I guess, not married and not in a relationship. And he does have uh, some kind of ex. And we don't know if it's a, a male or female, but an yeah. ex that can potentially examine these. So I, I guess this person works in some kind of lab. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, he says that. Well, there's a lab in the precinct, and you know now she's basically implying like, well, this has got to be on the down low. We we can't run this through the the precinct. Mm-hmm. He wants to know if these pills basically have anything to do with Judd's death. Yeah. He asks uh, where they came from, and Angela dismisses mm-hmm. him. He's like, oh, does it matter? Yeah. Um, yeah. And he says it matters if it's related to the the murder of our beloved police chief. Right. Um, yeah. And then that's when Angela asks him if he knew he was a racist. And he pulls out yeah. Judd's secret clan robe. Uh-huh. What does he say? He's, he's like, like, he's a white, he's a he's a white, white man, man in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she then shows him the robes and... He goes... Uh, he, he Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, he, he goes, uh, you reckon he was cavalry? And then uh, Angela just, just points to the robes and is like, you reckon he was? Um, and then Wade, he's like... It looks like we have ourselves a reckoning, which was... Yes, I really like that. I wrote that line yeah, down, too, because I thought it was really good, funny and really clever. Good, good line. And LG notices that the robe is old school, right? This is before right. 7th K, and he notices the badge. Right. And he does mention that Crawford's granddaddy was in law enforcement, mm-hmm. so it could potentially just be his and not actually Judd's. Right. So this is the point where I actually want to give a little bit of shout out to one of our Twitter followers, Ahmed Childress, who's been kind of interacting with me and Jeff on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's multiple avenues for, you know, our listeners to kind of interact with us. And this is actually something he brought up back during episode two when we found the, the robe. And, you know, I think he, he got his information also from the PDPedia files where uh, he reminded me that, you know, Crawford's granddad and dad, or he's like fourth generation lawman, right? Mm-hmm. So he he was saying that hey what if the robe's not actually you know Judd's and it, it could be his granddad's right so you know LG has the exact same kind of assumption here mm-hmm. so we don't know we don't know if it's if it's um, Judd's or if it's his granddad's yeah I personally would love it to just still be Judd's because it makes Judd's character a lot more complex yeah. and it ties more into kind of like the whole you know parallel with the comedian right versus if it was just a keepsake that he keeps a really weird keepsake, but you know, versus just being his actual robes. And then uh, LG also warns uh, Angela that Lori is extremely weird. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, the scene, they were kind of bantering saying like, you're weird. No, you're weird. And then he's like, this lady's extremely weird, yeah. which really funny to me. Um, yeah. And I think the scene was like, really shows the nature of, of Wade and, and, uh, and Looking Glass, you know? Because, like, he's supposed to be, like, kind of a parallel to Rorschach, but he's much more stable. Like, he has yes. he has an ex-significant other. He's able to, like, empathize and things like that. Yes. And, and he's just a much more stable human being than, than Rorschach yep. ever was. And he shares traits. He's, like, a survivalist. He's, like, a conspiracy theorist, maybe. He's like mm-hmm. obsessed with these squids, but like, you know, he eats beans out yeah, of a can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there, there are parallels to Rorschach, but I, I think, yeah, you're right. He and you hit it right on the nail when he said he he can empathize. I think that's probably the big difference between him and, and the Rorschach character. Yeah. So we get into the next scene where we, we, it looks like Angela's kind of uh, <laughs> my, over a bridge. My favorite scene of the entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
so we see Angela kind of over the or on this bridge, and and she, we see her throw the bag, which is the bag that has the the wheelchair parts. Yeah, over the bridge yeah. and in into it. Was it a train or was it a truck? I couldn't. It's tell. a truck. It's a truck. Oh, it was a truck. All right, mm-hmm. and basically she's discarding the evidence, and then she starts to walk away, but then like something six cents or something, sense, like something behind her. Like, yeah, yeah, feels something behind her. Then she turns around. And there's this guy in this silver jumpsuit. Yeah, right. It's like a one piece and, jumpsuit from head yeah, to the toe. The one piece silver, it's like super yeah, skinny guy with a with a mask and like goggles on his head. She's like, hey, and she starts chasing him. <laughs> And he gives her a really good chase. Like, it's a really long chase scene. And then he has uh, these bottles of lubricant on his belt, Mm -hmm. on his utility belt. He's running down the street, and then he douses himself with this liquid in his, uh, from his utility belt. And he slides into the sewer grate. Yep. And it was just, it's It's just just like crazy, crazy looking scene. Well, first of all, yeah. she turns around. She's like, what the fuck? And then yeah. when he slides under that, she's like, what the fuck? So, like, <laughs> every week, I think Angela says, what the fuck, once. And yeah. it's always we should do, one of We got to take a shot every time she does it. Yeah. <laughs> and the way she delivers her what the fucks are always the, Great. the best. So, so lube my, man. Okay. <laughs> lube, yes. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The logic police in my head. My only gripe with this is that, like, he only kind of hits his shoulders and his head. Yeah. If he's going in feet first, like, I swear there's still going to be way too much friction for him to actually, like, yeah, unless he's, like, already kind of lubed up. But I was like, that's not enough lube for you to be able to, like, uh, you know, slide across asphalt into it. Yeah, it's sewer. it's clearly asphalt, right? So it's like, yeah, it's not like a smooth surface that he can just, yeah, slide right in. in that but thing. And, I'm gonna let that go. I still thought it was a hilarious scene that just had me bursting out when when that happened. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's too funny. I can't, I, yeah, I can't fault it for, for yeah, I forgive physics. it for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, so the next thing we, we see Angela go back to the precinct uh-huh. and she's kind of going up the elevator and the elevator doors open and right in front of her is Senator Keene. Right. Um, and he looks like he has like two bodyguards next to him, you know, especially what happened recently. Right. And they kind of start having this conversation and he basically lets on that he knows exactly who she is. Right. He thanks her for saving his life. Right. And basically saying like, hey, I know you're Angela Abar. And this goes back to what you've been saying. Like, he's definitely giving off a very suspicious vibe. Yeah. Right? Where she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I should have known I was a target. Yeah. Right? Um, And he he, says it's his fault. And he was a target and he put everyone in danger. And then Angela, she's real frosty too, right? She says that, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. It is your fault. And all she says is, try not to get kidnapped next time. Um, yep. And that's the end of that little exchange. Yeah, so Senator Keene, he's he's shady. He could be a red herring, though. Who knows? Yeah, he could be. But at the same time, you're right, though. He's definitely giving us some shady vibes. Yeah. So uh, the scene moves on, and, and she, I guess, goes to the desk where Pirate Jenny and, and Red Scare are, are at. And she drops off this belt. The guy takes off the belt, right, so that he can... So he can fit you know, into easily, the grate. Yeah. yeah, fit into the grate. So that's evidence that he leaves behind that she grabs. 
and basically asks Pirate Jenny and Red Scare, like, hey, are there any vigilantes that are, you know, tall, skinny, and head to toe wearing spandex and lubes up with this lube? You know, Pirate Jenny asks, like, well, did he have a head of lettuce? And then Red Scare is like, well, was he wearing a Rorschach mask and saying right. TikTok? TikTok? TikTok, TikTok. And, you know, basically implying that please don't give a crap right now because it has nothing to do with the death of Judd, right? Everyone seems to be really focused on getting the 7K members or getting whoever is involved with the killing of their chief, mm-hmm. right? And our Red says then the new boss isn't going to give a shit about Lube Man. Yeah, yeah. Which is a great name for a superhero. So let's uh, let's keep that one going. Yeah. And then Angela's like new boss. Oh, uh, so before we move on from this, do you have any kind of speculation on who you think this lube man is? Everyone says he's Petey, but I don't I don't know. Who knows? And that was my first guess too, just because you know she specifically says he's tall and skinny. Yeah, which they, the only they share a build, right? A physical yeah. build. And he is like a fan and he studies superheroes. Yeah, vigilantes, vigilantes, right? Yeah. So like that's my best guess, but it could definitely just be a coincidence and we'll meet this person in the future, right? Yeah. The scene moves into the new boss's office where we find out that her new boss is now Lori. Because we saw last week, Senator Keene had asked Lori to go down there basically to run this investigation, right? So it makes sense that she's now in charge. Yeah. So she's taking up residence in uh, Judd's old office. So Lori kind of has a conversation with Angela saying that, you know, hey, there's a, a new lead on your car. Mm-hmm. And she says that, you know, like they found some prints and... They ran it through Quantico's database and they got a hit. The music kind of gets a little bit suspenseful. There's kind of a pause. And we're expecting her to say, well, the name of the person is Will Abar, right? Mm -hmm. But then she says his name is William Reeves. Yeah. I think this is new information for Angela that, you know, this person doesn't use the last name Abar, but uses the last name Reeves. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a cop in NYC in the 40s and 50s. You know, Lori does the math and says, well, um, you know, this person's, by my math, 100 years old. And she asks Angela, do you know how 100-year-olds get around? Yeah. She says, in a wheelchair. Wheelchairs. Yeah. It goes back to, you know, last week when she discovers the wheelchair checks at the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, Petey comes in uh, and, you know, he whispers something in Lori's ear. And Lori's like, oh, shit, what a coincidence. You know, we have another lead on your car. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to ask before we move on to the scene, was there significance or if I might not remember anything, is there any significance to the, the NYC in the 40s and 50s? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, she did say that he retired young and then fell off the grid yeah. after his stint as a cop. Mm-hmm. So perhaps he didn't retire young and he became a vigilante. Yeah, Ooh. that's kind of the implication I'm getting to. Yeah. yeah. So that could be the that could be the reason. Was there anything else you want to talk no, about? No, no. We, we, uh, okay. we can move on to this next so scene. So we, we, we go uh, to the next scene where they're, I guess, driving in the car, presumably to where this new lead is. And then Angela kind of asks, like, oh, why does the FBI care about my car? And, you know, uh, Lori says, you know, it was stolen right after the Crawford murders and returned the night of his funeral. So it looks very suspicious. The car does look very suspicious. And Lori then explains this idea of thermodynamic miracles. Mm-hmm. Uh, what she says is basically the sciencey version of it's all connected, man. Yeah. Uh, and then she says a line. My ex used to talk about it when he wasn't distracted by fucking quarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you want to explain? Yeah. So it's clearly a reference. reference to Dr. Manhattan, right? And this is a direct callback to the graphic novel 
where Dr. Manhattan is comforting Lori on Mars. And he equates Lori's entire existence and, and therefore the entire existence of humanity as thermodynamic miracles, right? Where the birth of every single human is just a confluence of like coincidences and things falling in place at the exact right time to create the person that you are, right? And, and mm -hmm. that's what the thermodynamic miracle is. Yeah, so it's a pretty neat callback. I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. yeah. And then we'll get another kind of callback uh, with it later and we'll mention that. Uh -huh. But uh, Lori reveals that, you know, she talked to Cal earlier. Yeah. Right, that she went to Angela's house and talked to Cal. And what we learn is that Cal and Angela met in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. She also learns from Angela herself that, you know, she was a, an orphan. Yeah, her parents died when uh, she was young. person died when she was young. And uh, Lori says, oh, that makes sense, you know, you being an orphan. And then Angela asks, how so? You know, Lori goes in this monologue about how people who wear masks are, you know, driven by trauma. Yeah. It, it hides their pain. She uh, she asks, like, oh, did your parents get murdered by nuns? Or <laughs> yeah. were you raised by nuns after your parents were <laughs> right. murdered? Which reminds me of um, Daredevil, actually, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Sister you know, Maggie his, his, raises yeah. Matt Murdock. Raises uh, Matt Murdock yeah. after, you know, his dad was murdered. Yeah. Um, but Angela, she kind of snaps back at, at Laurie saying, like, oh, really? Then what was your trauma? Mm -hmm. Right. And then she tells Petey explain my trauma you know and it says that pd is basically an expert on her and, and her compatriots and then he goes into kind of a monologue saying like yo you know laurie's parents were the comedian and silk specter from mm -hmm. the minutemen which uh angela's like from the tv show yeah and then pd responds that show is garbage yeah. right it's full of historical inaccuracies so this this goes back to what you mentioned in the PDpedia files, right? A couple of weeks ago. Do you kind of want to remind everyone about that? Yeah. So PD has very strong opinions about the historical inaccuracies of American Hero Story, right? Um, so mm -hmm. in that exhibit of the PDpedia files, he's talking about how inaccurate it is, how sensational it is, and how it really disrespects Laurie in particular. So that's PD's opinion about American Hero Story. So I guess if the internet did exist, he'd be on Reddit, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, or Twitter, yeah. talking shit about American Hero Story. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to our email that we got last week. Uh, this is another piece of information that we got it earlier from the PDpedia files, but it, it seemed like the show found it important enough to share with everybody. So again, you know, PDP files are just, you know, supplemental. They're great. They add a lot of information, but maybe not necessary. And what is necessary will be given to you in some form or manner, right? Right. Yeah. And that, that goes for uh, this week's PDP files too, but we'll get into that mm -hmm. later. They're, yeah, we can. These are pretty good files on, on this yeah. week's episode. They're short so. ones too. Yeah, they're short they're, ones. They're pretty, pretty, pretty meaty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it's revealed that they're on the way to True Industries or the warehouse. So I guess that's where the lead is, right, for her car. Mm -hmm. So when we go inside the warehouse and Lori asks one of the workers, who, I guess who's manning one of the aircrafts, right? These aircrafts that we mentioned earlier they are giant kind of hovercrafts that can basically lift materials up. Yeah, they're, um, they're just basically giant unmanned drones, right? Um, yeah, basically. And then uh, Lori asked the worker, like, well, how many of these do you have? And, you know, what's their range? 
And the worker says we have six and their range is about a hundred kilometers. So then she basically, you know, posits that, well, okay, then someone could be technically standing here and could have used it all the way over there in Greenwood downtown. Mm-hmm. Right. Basically kind of implying that, well, I think someone here did it. Right. Right. And then this is at, at the point where we, we get to see the little girl in the beret again. Mm-hmm. And she introduces herself as beyond. Mm-hmm. She's a little snarky too, yeah. right? <laughs> she she basically says like, "Well, typically how we deal with you people is that <laughs> yeah, we tell you to fuck we, off." Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah, we basically tell you to you know we won't give you the time of day. But uh, my mother, Lady True, uh, wants to invite you to have tea with her in the Bavaria. Yeah. Uh, Petey tries to go along, but she's like, "Yeah, uh-uh. ladies only. Ladies only. Petey's left behind. <laughs> Poor Petey." Yeah. They, they get into this kind of, and while they're walking to, I guess, the elevator, they get into the conversation about, um, what was the other? Yeah, seven uh, yeah, they're talking about the Colossus of Rhodes. Colossus which, of Rhodes, yeah, sorry. Which was swallowed by the sea, the Library of Alexandria. Which Alexandria. Was, I was mixing those two. <laughs> which is toppled by, by earthquakes. And yeah. Beyond says, not one of them built to last, right? And Blake asks if they're building the eighth wonder of the world. And Beyond corrects her saying, it's the first wonder of the new world. Yeah, a thousand miles from the ocean, it's impervious to seismic activity, and nothing short of a nuclear blast can do anything to it. Two interesting bits of information there, right? Where she specifically says, you know, first wonder of a new world. Right. It it brings me back to what Adrian did, right? He was trying to create this kind of new world of peace uh, in in the comics. So it it almost kind of harkens back to that. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that she says that no short of a a nuclear blast Mm -hmm. so you know the comics dealt a lot with two minutes to midnight kind of theme and and nuclear arms race and i mean even the fact that dr man had himself is kind of a giant nuclear bomb Mm -hmm. right all those things are 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 kind of racing through my head when um when they're talking about uh about this clock right yeah and then angela asks what it does and and beyond says it tells time yes which is a little contradictory to what lady true said earlier right yeah. Right. Because she says it's more than just the clock. Right. But then when the cops are asking, well, it just tells time. Right. <laughs> yeah. So they go up to, I guess, uh, the Vivarium and, and Lady True knows already that Lori is Agent Blake and the, this other person is Sister Knight. She apologizes for the humidity because basically she creates an artificial environment to mimic Vietnam, basically. Right. Right. She has a story about, you know, her mother never wanted her to leave Vietnam, so she basically brought Vietnam to herself. Now Vietnam never leaves her. Yeah, so it's like a little loophole for yeah. for her mother's wishes on her deathbed, right? That's what she says. Yeah, um, yeah. And then uh, this definitely reminds me of uh, the comics, right? Where Adrian creates this rainforest at Karnak, right? Yeah. You know, Karnak's this kind of frozen tundra of space, but he, he was able to create this kind of biosphere, of like a rainforest in there, right? Yeah, his own little so kind uh, of vivarium, yeah. you know? Yeah. So definitely, definitely reminds me of that. Mm-hmm. And then Laurie's like, oh, what a coincidence. Knight is also from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lady Chu's like, oh, what a coincidence. And then Angela kind of prods a little bit. And she's like, well, at least it's a thermodynamic miracle. Mm-hmm. Right, so she's kind of using Lori's language against her, or they're poking fun a little bit. Right, you know, they have a, a conversation about the car, and we're here because you know we want a list of all the people that can fly one of those lifts. 
and you know bn you know hands over that list to them mm-hmm. and uh true you know gives her condolences about the chief she says that uh, i remember an expression about grief from when i was little mm-hmm. and then she says something in vietnamese presumably so that Lori can't understand and she says your grandpa wants to know if you got the pills mm-hmm. so she's talking directly to angela this is where we find out that true was the one that took will right it was one of the aircrafts that you know lifted the the car out of downtown and presumably back to here mm-hmm. right to drop will off mm-hmm. and then angela responds to me to me is uh tell that old fucker he can ask me himself right it's a so it's, yeah. it's a cute little uh exchange of subterfuge here because like Lori's out in yeah. the dark and they're speaking uh in vietnamese i mean it, it's probably was already implied uh, or you probably could have guessed that Angela speaks Vietnamese, but it's kind of you know confirmed that she you know she's multilingual and, and she knows Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Lori notices a statue of uh, Adrian Veidt, right? And she's like, "Oh shit, that's Adrian Veidt!" Right? Yeah. <laughs> and she she points and, out how odd it is because he looks old, right? Yeah. And Lady True says that she may have bought Veidt's company after his disappearance, but. In Vietnamese culture, they revere their elders, and that's exactly what she's doing with uh, Adrian Veidt's likeness, right? It slowly kind of pans, and we see that it it's definitely Jeremy Irons, right? Yeah. Like the so, is, like it almost like, at first, I was like, okay, are they going to show us someone that isn't Jeremy Irons? So that we're going to be even more confused. Yeah, who, but it, it clearly guy, is Jeremy Irons. It clearly is. Yeah, so the statue. Of I, I guess Irons. this is punching a hole in the theory that Doctor Manhattan. Is holding uh, Adrian Veidt hostage, right? As as prisoner. Now I think we can infer that it's Lady True that has him. It could be, right? Could because be. Adrian Veidt disappeared in 2012, and then Laurie mm-hmm. points out how weird it is that the statue looks old. So no one would really know what he looks like except for Lady True. Oh, right? I see because yeah. the the likeness on the statue is exactly Jeremy Irons. Although seven years mm-hmm. isn't a long enough time to really time change. to make a big difference, yeah. yeah. But we can, we can get into that because I I personally think it still could be it could be Doctor um, Manhattan still Doctor Manhattan um, still yeah. You know, we see there's like a match cut. Now we're going into Adrian's story, right? right. We're we're doing our weekly divergence into uh, the land of Jeremy Irons right. and I guess Adrian Bite. We, we see Adrian is on a boat and he pulls out what looks like one of those like uh, traps. It's like or, crab traps. Or some kind of, yeah. yeah, like crab traps or some kind of like cage to trap things in the water. Mm-hmm. Inside this cage are what look like tiny little babies. Mm-hmm. Creepy little babies. Uh, creepy little babies. And he starts rummaging through them and like looks at one and, and it's like, oh, not good enough. And like throws it back into the lake. Yeah. And like grabs another one. It's like, nope, not good enough. And like throws that one into the lake. And it's weird. Like, I guess he picks two of them and he, he goes back into his lab, puts them into this giant machine. Right? Yeah, it's like he a puts, steampunk type centrifuge, I guess. That's the best way to describe it. Yes. He puts the baby. He puts in, them basically back to back. Right. Yeah. Almost and like then, a centrifuge. And then like it spins. And then uh, he does his own little thing. He puts on some reggae music. And, and he eats a slice of his he's cake, eating his uh, cake, the same cake a, that we're a new anniversary cake. And then you know we hear some weird sounds. We definitely hear some screaming. What looks like uh, crunching. And uh, when the machine is done, we see that it's an adult Mr. Phillips and Crookshanks. Right. My question is then, 
did someone give him this machine or did he make this machine? I'm not sure. Again, yeah. like if you're a prisoner of someone, why would they give you the means to to do this, right? Potentially yeah, escape or, or yeah. Um, another question I have is, does he always have to make a Crookshanks and a Phillips, right? Or Mr. Phillips. Right. Because, you know, the last couple of episodes when we've seen this, he's very loosey-goosey with, uh, you know, killing Mr. Phillips. And we've never actually seen him kill a Crookshanks until the next scene. That's where I had the question. I'm like, well, I mean, if he's cool killing a bunch of Mr. Phillips, I would make more Mr. Phillips to replace the ones that he kills. Right, right. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm assuming they're all Mr. Phillips and Crookshanks babies, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming that that all the ones that are in that lake or whatever he's in are all just Mr. Phillips and, and, and Crookshanks. Mm-hmm. And so this is interesting. We're getting some new bits of information, right? We, we get to see the birth of these. I, I don't know what you want to call them. He says, you know, uh, you've been alive for a couple hours and you can't talk yet, but at least you can understand me. And then he says, you know, do you know who you are? He says, your flaws in this thoughtless design. It's like, I may be your master, but I definitely am not your maker. Right. Right. And <laughs> he brings them in and says, you know, don't mind the mess. And what we see is that he has basically killed, I'm assuming, is every other version of Mr. Phillips and Crookshanks. Yeah, it's like a massacre of Mr. Yeah. Phillips and Crookshanks. Yeah. He, he says, yes, he's had a rough night. Again, it looks like uh, we see the cake and we see the four candles, mm-hmm. right? So this is assuming that this is now the fourth year. And it basically, he spells it out a little bit later. And what's interesting, he grabs the horseshoe again. And he says, I don't need it yet. All right. Yeah. So I guess he has a plan for some kind of horseshoe. I don't know. It's we don't know. Very, very cryptic. We still don't know what's, yeah. what's going on here. So the next scene moves out and he's like in the open field again. And now we see this giant trebuchet right. Right, that he, he's built. And yeah. we saw the model in the last episode. And he's loading up these dead bodies into the, the trebuchet. Mm-hmm. And this also goes back to episode... Oh, I'm getting these all confused. Is it episode two where he does the play, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then after he burns that, that one Mr. Phillips, he tells the other Mr. Phillips that, you know, the bodies will be used eventually. Yeah, so right? I'm assuming this is the use for those, those This dead is bodies. the use for the bodies. Yep. He launches one of the dead bodies into the sky, and he's kind of tracking it with his... Um, his telescope. Telescope. And, it you know, it's, it's approaching the sky, and then all of a sudden it just disappears. Right. They don't come back down, so obviously yeah, don't come back something's down. happening to these dead bodies. Jeremy Irons gets into a little bit of exposition saying like, you know, I've been here for four years. When I first got here, I thought it was paradise, but now I know it's a prison. Does he actually say four years? He says four years since he was sent there. That's an interesting choice of word. And he basically does say that his plan is to escape. Right. And it's, it's nice to see these trebuchets finally in action, right? We've seen like yeah. the little model, the little drawings, but now yeah. the actual trebuchets. I guess HBO is like, we have so many of these left over from Game of Thrones. We got to <laughs> we gotta fucking use them somewhere, right? Maybe that's, that's what's happening there. But it's very cryptic. We don't know what's going on. So I'm sure we'll find out soon enough. I love these asides. Like I love going back to this character and, and figuring out what craziness he's getting into this week. Yeah. And they're always giving us new information, but they're also giving us new things to think about and just making me 
even more confused. I'm not sick of these yet, but I can see myself yes. getting a little tired of this if, if we have to see another four or five episodes. Okay, let, let's do the math, right? He was taken in 2012. Right. And he it's been four years, so that means it's 2016. Right. And the show takes place in 2019. There might be three Probably more at least three more, right? <laughs> and maybe he's the thing that lands in uh, the Clark Farmstead land, right? Who knows? We never know. It moves into uh, the next scene where we're back in uh, Angela's house and, and Angela's come home and, and finds that you know, cow's on the couch. And they have this conversation and Angela's looking to pick a fight, but Cal's is actually very, very calm. And then it's, this is where we get into kind of what you were describing before. He was saying he, he's reading the book, uh, Things, you know, Things, Things Fall Apart. apart right? <laughs> Angela spoils the ending. And then they get into the conversation about what he told Lori. And he, he lies about it all, right? He's basically saying all the things he probably should have said to Lori or the truth mm-hmm. that, you know, Angela understands. But clearly Angela's like, well, you lied. It's like, yes, I lied for you. And you know, Angela uh, realizes, well, you hate lying. and Yeah, she, she knows that Cal hates lying, which yeah. is why he's upset. I mean, he doesn't really show that he's upset, but like you can tell that it's something that's bothered him. She asks him like why, when he was going to tell her that Lori came to see him. And he essentially tells her that he's telling her right now, right? He's like, um, I'm telling you right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one interesting tidbit that we got is that she asked him, did you tell her about your accident? Yeah. Which we don't know what this is, right? We don't know. I'm I assuming think... it took place in Vietnam. Yeah. But who knows? We're, we're, not, we're not sure what, what that accident entails. Yeah, yeah. He says it didn't come up. So I, I'm guessing this is a, a piece of information that we're going to learn. Hopefully soon. The show's actually really good, but not letting pieces of information go too many episodes without coming up again or being resolved. Like the trebuchet, the model, the trebuchet we saw last episode is being used this episode. My guess is we're going to meet LG's ex very soon. Right. Especially if you watch the next time on the next week's episode does seem very focused on LG. And then Angela's like, meet you in the closet. Yeah. So that's, that's code for let's go do it in the closet. Because we saw that in episode two. Right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, episode one. I'm sorry. No, that was episode one. Maybe. And then it cuts to Beyond, who uh, wakes up from her nightmare. And she's kind of breathing heavy and she's like panting. And then we see that she's being injected with some kind of IV, yeah, right? Yeah, she takes an IV out of her arm when she wakes up. Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, when she goes to sleep, she has to hook up to this machine mm-hmm. or this this medicine. I don't know what it is. Uh, she walks to her mother uh, and, you know, tells her about her nightmare. Yeah. She says, you know, I was in a village. Men came and burned it. They made us walk for so long. And, and she's telling her mom that, you know, her feet still hurt, uh, which was very, very strange. What do you what do you get from this? Or what are you thinking about this? Let's go through the rest of the scene first, right? Because okay, sure. Lady True says, when Bian says her feet still hurt, Lady True says, good. Right? Yeah. And Bian asks if, if Lady True can walk her back to bed, and, and she says no, right? Mm-hmm. And then Bian, she says goodnight to Will Reeves, who's Mr. in the room yeah. the entire time. And then Lady True and Will, they, they were having a conversation when her daughter came in to interrupt her with a nightmare. And Lady True says that, oh, those pills of yours, they're passive-aggressive exposition. And that if he wants Angela to know who he is, that he should just tell her. And this Mm -hmm. is super interesting because Will says that she has to experience it for herself. 
and that what Lady True is doing to Bien is with the IV is the same exact thing, right? And Lady True mm-hmm. disagrees. So I'm assuming that what's in the IV and what composes the pills that Will takes, they're similar things. Does he specifically say the IV? Yeah, he says. Yeah, what you're doing with that IV is is the same. So like this goes into, I don't know if you picked up on this, but like it goes into like epigenetics, which is mm-hmm. talking about hereditary trauma, like negative effects of trauma that are passed down from generation to generation. Yes. And this is like a relatively new field of biology and medicine. So there's not that much research on it, but like people are beginning to discover that effects of trauma, you can actually pass that down to like the next generation, right? But this is going a step further. This is going into specific memories, right? And not Mm -hmm. just the effects of the trauma, but like memories of the trauma. So, I mean, Lady True, she's a trillionaire, right? And I'm assuming she's every bit as smart as Ozymandias is, every bit as smart as uh, Adrian Veidt is, right? And Mm -hmm. she's probably created these pills or this IV so that she can pass down these memories of traumatic events to other people. And this is like the big through line about like white colonialism in this episode. All right, so let me ask you, what do you think the Millennium Clock is for? What's your theory? Do you have a theory? I honestly do not have a theory for this. I, don't, I still don't understand what it could be used for. Okay. I have a theory that the Millennium Clock is going to be used in an attempt to kill Dr. Manhattan. That might be Lady True's endgame, because Dr. Manhattan was instrumental in the Vietnam War, right? He's mm-hmm. the reason that the United States won the Vietnam War. Yep. And I don't know, maybe Lady True has like some real resentment towards this Western encroachment, right? Especially if you, if you take a look at her namesake, which is the real life Lady True was fighting against the encroachment by the Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. So this could be like a reference to that. And she's like trying to pass down the memories and the anger to... Her daughter, which, I don't know, could be a clone, right? If you're looking at, like, what Adrian Veidt is up to. I feel like there's a big through line there that we can tie together. I mean, who knows? I'm just, I'm just throwing a theory out there. Because what Beyond describes very much sounds like something that didn't happen to her, but happened to somebody else. And it does sound like, you know, she says a village, right? Which, you know, she doesn't live in a village, but... Her mother or someone from Vietnam could have been, you know, in a village when, you know, Americans came and burned it down. And, and they said, make them, you know, took her as a prisoner and made her walk. Right. So, like, right. that's exactly where my my mind went when she was kind of describing her dream. Right. And I read another theory that Lady True lied about her mother and her deathbed request for her. And that uh-huh. Lady True's mother is the pregnant woman that the comedian murdered in the bar in the graphic novel and that she was the baby and she survived. Oh, like the baby still somehow survived? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's possible. If you're you're far enough along, Mm -hmm. you could technically survive even if your mother is is dead, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. That could be be true too. Who knows? That could Um, be. That could be. Yeah, because it's very specifically tying back to the events of Vietnam. 
And and that's one of the big things that happens in the comics in Vietnam was where, you know, a woman goes to the comedian and says, like, you know, this is your baby. The, you know, you caused this. And the comedian basically shoots her dead. Or he, she basically slashes his face. And that's yeah, with like a, a broken bottle. Yeah. I mean, if if that is true, that would actually make Lady True and uh, Lori Blake have sisters, right? Oh, because yeah. Yeah. The comedian would be both their fathers. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so there's uh, one last bit of the, the conversation that we should probably mention is that Lady True is kind of accusing, you know, Will saying like, probably shouldn't have told your, your granddaughter. And that, you know, when you bring family into this, it gets emotional. And then, you know, people get cold feet because of it, because they are trying to enact some kind of plan. Uh, we don't know exactly what that plan is yet. But he asked her, you know, how much longer does, you know, does he have? She says three days. And he says in three days, Angela will know what he has done. Yeah. And that he betrayed her. Basically, yeah. He, he, she will hate him for it. But he also says that I'm in He's all, all in, the way. Yeah. And that, you know, his feet are just fine. And he also basically shows us that he doesn't need the wheelchair. Like he stands up, he gets up. And yeah, starts he's, he's fully able bodied, right? And he's walking around. Yeah. He doesn't need that wheelchair. Yeah, and then they, they kind of walk outside and they're looking like they're you know, staring up into the sky or at the moon. And then he starts saying, TikTok, TikTok. So what is that about, right? Yeah, I've, I have no idea. Is the 7th Cavalry just all being kind of orchestrated by Lady True, maybe? And it's just something to distract the police, you know, while they're enacting their plan? It could be. But like, I think Lady True and Will, they're... They're brought together by these uh, by these devices that can convey memories of of traumatic events, right? Mm-hmm. Will probably with Tulsa twenty one the massacre, yep. and then Lady True with the defeat of Vietnam at the hands of the Americans, right? So I don't know two two different marginalized characters and peoples, you know. I mean, when you think about like the maybe knowing the memories of your ancestors, it kind of makes me think of Dr. Manhattan a little though, right? Where Dr. Manhattan is able to kind of see all of his memories all at once or all of his, his life all at once. Right. Like it's kind of an interesting parallel where maybe these pills or whatever they're trying to enact will maybe bring up the memories of your ancestors so that you kind of experience all those all at once. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know where the show's going still. So that was the last scene. What did you think of the episode, Jeff? I enjoyed it. It wasn't my favorite episode. I think it's starting to trip over itself a little bit with the number of mysteries that it's introducing. And I'm not at the point where I'm annoyed by it yet, but like this is a nine-episode season, right? So we only have, what, five episodes left, which is not a lot of narrative economy to like tie up all these loose ends and, and things like that. So... And we're also introducing a lot of new characters. And I think Lori has gotten the most characterization so far. She, along with Angela. But I think Lady True and Will Rees, as cool of characters as they are, as, as well as Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt, as cool as they are, they're so like withholding with new information that you can't really connect with them as characters just yet and i think this episode probably made that even more apparent so this wasn't my favorite episode but there was a lot of chew on yeah and it's also talking about like a lot of these 
really relevant themes, which the show hasn't shied away from. So it's still something that's really captivating and, and something that I'm really enjoying. But not my favorite episode of the four. I mean, what do you what do you think? I, I would agree. This is probably my least favorite episode so far. As much as it introduces us to a new character and, and new mysteries, it felt like a lot of filler. It still felt like it was repeating a lot of what we already knew. I felt that, you know, the scene of Angela going to the cultural center, like, was really unnecessary. I think that could have been condensed in a different way, but also not really sure why she had to go there when all of this information was already kind of confirmed to her. Like, we've already gotten all this information that we know that, you know, her grandfather is Will and her great-grandfather is Obi. Yeah, I mean, I know she doesn't know, but we already know. So it's almost like we're we're just getting repeat information. And then for me, this is a lot of, of filler. Kind of like you, I'm starting to get a little tired of, maybe this is the wrong way to say this. I'm not tired of the mystery, but I am tired of starting to get way too much new information versus without getting like you're right. Without getting answers to the old questions that, all right, if you want to talk about it that way, I think you can see a parallel with what happened on Lost, except Lost, I feel like the mysteries really didn't have a purpose other than enticing the audience to come back. But here, I think everything has a purpose, and I don't think that we're just meandering about with with cool little mysteries that, that are never going to be answered. I think everything has a purpose, and everything's building towards that purpose, right? I wouldn't say that this episode was filler. I would say more it's just kind of spinning its wheels a bit, especially since we had to build up this character of Lady True from the ground up in like 60 minutes, right? We're not really spending the amount of time we want to with the characters that we've already familiarized ourselves with in the past couple of episodes. And and this was right after the introduction of Laurie Blake, the last episode, right? Yep. It's a lot to digest. No, but I think it goes to what you were saying, though. Like, knowing that this is a nine-episode season, episode four is maybe not the episode where we should be meeting a whole new character that seems pretty pivotal to this whole story. Uh You mentioned Lost. The Mm. parallel that I'm starting to see that he's doing with this show and Lost is that it seems like each episode is focused on a character, actually. I feel like each episode we've gotten is like a character's episode. The first episode being really strongly, my opinion, Judd's episode. The second episode being Will's episode. Third episode being Laurie's. And now this was like Lady True's episode. Mm -hmm. But still interspersed, like a lot of learning a lot about Angela. And then, of course, each episode getting our Adrian Vite Phil. Right, right. But I I feel like, you know, it's and, and kind of seeing if you've seen the preview on for next week, you know, next week seems very much like it's going to be LG's episode does seem a little like character centric at at points mm-hmm. and i don't know we'll we'll see how the structure plays out for the rest of the season you know yeah um, also i was talking to amir earlier about this episode mm-hmm. and he was reading an article by uh, by sean collins on decider so i want to ask you is lady true a racist character do you think huh. she plays into the stereotype of the dragon lady like the Yes. The mysterious Asian woman who's just mysterious for being mysterious' sake, you know? She's, like, ruthless. She's uh, conniving, you know? Mm-hmm. Does she fall within that stereotype? What do you, what do you Ooh. think? Oh, man. 
I didn't think of it when I was. T- you know, I didn't either. But um, now that now that I you mentioned read it, that article, and I was talking to Amir a bit, I can see where it comes from. I don't think I. Yeah. I don't think I agree that she plays into the dragon lady stereotype. Like I can see where it comes from. Mm-hmm. She definitely does exhibit some of the characteristics. I would partially say no, only because the other two females that are the leads on this show are also very strong women, right? It's not like she's coming out of nowhere. It seems like, you know, there's three heads to this this dragon then, if you want to use that analogy, right? right. Where we see this strong character in Angela, we see this very strong character in Laurie, and now we're seeing this, uh, you know, this third kind of strong female presence in Lady True. Maybe if if the others were timid and she just came out out as super strong, maybe that's a good uh, point. I could read it that way. That's a good point. But I, I kind of don't because I, I just see this as a very female led show at, at this moment. Right, and I also think like the dragon lady stereotype. It definitely plays up those aspects just for the sake of like exoticism. Right, it's something. Mm-hmm. It's like a relic of like the mid twentieth century, but here. We're talking about like colonialism, themes of like the Vietnam War and things like that. And like her Vietnamese heritage is a huge part of that character and the character's arc. So I don't think it quite plays into the the racist stereotype. And yeah, I would agree. Like, what are the chances that Damon Lindelof was so consumed by the racial issues of of the Black American? Uh, that he totally forget about like the Asian. I don't think he would do something like that, right? Yeah, and, I don't think so. And it's either. only been one episode, so like after watching the first episode, you're like, oh, he's walking a very dangerous tightrope, talking about like police mm-hmm. brutality, and then like the experience of like a Black America, and like all this stuff, like remixing history. You know, like he's playing a dangerous mm-hmm. game, but in the end, it turned out pretty good. Like he's I would say that he's pulled it off pretty well. And and yeah. Lady True's only been in one episode, so we don't know where this is going. So I I, I have faith. Do you have anything else? or PDpedia. We should talk about PDpedia. Oh, yes. Yeah, let's just dive in that really quick. So we got two new PDpedia articles. The first one's kind of a redacted document where it kind of spells out this kind of conversation between uh, Lori and the FBI after she's been caught. Right. So this was back in in 1995 when she was caught as a vigilante. Right. And we learn a lot here, right? She was caught with Dan and they were trying to uh, stop a, I guess, a a person named Mr. McVeigh. Yeah, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. It says, you know, they killed him, Mm -hmm. right? They stopped him from doing whatever he was going to do and and they killed him and they saved a bunch of people. But now, you know, she's under arrest because she's a vigilante and uh, it's illegal to be a vigilante. Yeah. So they thwarted the real world event of the Oklahoma city bombing. Right. Mm -hmm. And Timothy McVeigh, he was the white nationalist terrorist who blew up the, the federal building in Oklahoma in 1995 and killed a lot of people. But it looks like in this universe, Lori and Dan, they suited up, I guess, one more time to, to thwart this attack, right? And then they were apprehended. So we learned that, you know, at, at this point in their lives, they are no longer together. 
and that they were just trying to pull off or just trying to work one, one last time to stop Timothy McVeigh. Right. Uh, we also learned that Dan, I guess, created a company that creates tech to outfit the police with weapons. And that's why so much of their tech looks like the night owl stuff. Yeah. Right? Like the Archie. He's the one who he creates ship. the ship. Mm-hmm. He creates the goggles. Right. So that now explains why they have all this tech that looks like night owl stuff, but I guess it is not night owl stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Or it's not his, his, his stuff, but it, it's, it's tech to kind of mimic his stuff, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. And then, so this is, this is 1995, right? So this is already yes. 24 years ago. But Laurie is already exhibiting the shades of Laurie that we see now, right? She, yep. You're only a couple of years removed from them retiring their, their costume identities and living together. But she's already become this jaded kind of person, right? Well, the, the document also, you know, lets out that she's taken a different persona as the, the comedian. comedian. Yes. Yeah. So, right. Which is, we, we mentioned before, you know, it's basically an homage to her father who was the comedian. Right. So yeah, it, it's interesting that this person is very much the same person that we're seeing now. Uh, at least I didn't get it from the document. It, it doesn't explain how she gets, I guess, out of custody working for the FBI. Yeah. But it does give us a little shading on how their relationship imploded. Right. Between uh, yep. Lori and, and Dan, uh, she says uh, he wanted kids and I wanted guns. So it looks mm-hmm. like she really missed the costume adventuring. Uh, and then he wanted to kind of just settle down yeah. and, and probably um, you know put down roots, have a legacy. I think this <laughs> this uh, little transcript is super interesting because yep. you're talking about uh, Redford as president, right? Um, after Nixon, and you're talking about like a huge liberal slant in this alternate history, but you still have Timothy McVeigh trying to commit the Oklahoma City bombings, right? Does that mean that like the Waco siege and like Ruby Ridge, those those things still happen where the government like clamped down on these right-wing militias and things like that? I mean, it's super interesting. You know what this really reminds me of actually though? Is your little rant in our first episode about the rap music. Oh, the rap music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right? Yeah, of. it makes you kind of think like, what do we believe would happen in this world? Yeah, I mean, that was a little throwaway thing that just kind of bothered yeah. me that I feel like the writers wouldn't really think about. But like this stuff, I feel like it makes you really It's implying think. something, yeah. Yeah, um, that even with the Redfordations and Redford like implementing so many liberal policies that you still have like this unrest among like the the ultra right wing, right? Mm-hmm. And and you still have the government trying to like clamp down on on their activities and still result in events like Ruby Ridge and, and Waco and and things like that. So I don't know. It's it's interesting. It, it raises a lot of questions. So. And the other <laughs> Pedipedia exhibit is a schematic or a blueprint of Laurie's <laughs> Dr. Manhattan dildo. Before we, I guess, go to that is that the last bit we find out from the conversation excerpt or transcript is that Dan was the one who creates it for her, right? Yeah, as like a little kind of fuck you to her. Yeah. Um, saying like, oh, yeah. you're, you're still holding a torch for Dr. Manhattan. She's still holding a torch for Dan, too, because 
um, if going back to the episode when they're on the way to the Millennium Clock, the song that's playing on the radio is the same song that that plays in the Owl Ship when they uh, when they fight those rioters and they hook up in the in the Owl Ship. It's a good catch. <laughs> Yeah, so and then like you mentioned, the second document is basically like just basically a, a schematic of of the actual giant blue dildo, which yeah, is hilarious. It's like lithium battery pop uh, operated and, and all that stuff. Me being in the architecture field, I thought I found that really interesting. <laughs> oh yeah, that's <laughs> I, I was like really loved it. Yeah, I was like, oh funny. this this is so cool. <laughs> I, I did want to bring up one piece that we learned from I think it's the uh, HBO official podcast is that the the actual design of the dildo is inspired by Jeff Koons. Right. Yeah. So if if people don't know who that is, that's the artist. If you've ever seen it, who does those giant the balloon colorful animals. balloon oh, yeah, animals? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's very much supposed to in, invoke you know kind of a Jeff Koons aesthetic. Yeah. So I thought I found that really interesting. Like I said, not many PDP files this week, but very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting PDP files this week. Right. Uh, other than that, I think that will conclude this week's episode yeah so uh jeff where can people find you uh you can find me and my writing at strangeharbors.com um and you can follow me on twitter and instagram at strange harbors i write about movies film pop culture and i do this podcast and what about you derek uh so you can find me at uh, instagram and twitter at the wrong day day spelled d-a-y-i-k and i also host another podcast called the film trailers podcast where we talk a lot about uh, movies and movie trailers. Uh, you can find both the podcasts on, on any platform that you might subscribe to, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, um, most of the uh, large platforms. What really helps uh, for us, uh, you know, still being kind of a, a very infant uh, podcast is that if anyone goes out there, uh, especially Apple Podcasts, because I think Apple Podcasts is actually one of the only ones that allows you to rate mm-hmm. a, a podcast. But if you guys can give us a good rating, uh, on Apple Podcasts, that really helps to kind of get our, our podcast out to more people. Yeah, and subscribe too. Mm-hmm. It really helps boost our listenership. And we want to get this podcast out to as many people as we can. If you guys want to email us with any kind of questions or comments, uh, the email is whowatchesthepodcast at gmail.com. So I will see you guys next week. Yeah, see you guys next week. <laughs>